1995, director Ron Howard and star Tom Hanks gave the world a terrifying encapsulation of what can happen when everything goes wrong in space. In 2020, we sample the same whiskey 50 years apart. The film is Apollo 13. The whiskey is Seagram's Seven Crown. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film, film and, and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1995 Ron Howard film, Apollo 13. Hey, we've got a problem here. What did you do? Nothing. I stirred the tanks. Whoa. Hey. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Brad, it is good to be back in the studio with you, my friend. We are starting a series of four movies from 1995, 25 years ago already. I cannot believe that it has been 25 years since this movie came out. We're also going to be looking at Toy Story, the first Toy Story. So we're going back to back Hanks here. And then we're going to look at the best picture winner of 1995, Braveheart. And then in our fourth week, we are actually going to do something we've never done before. We're going to have a listener special. Uh, we were originally going to look at the movie The Usual Suspects, but that movie has become super problematic for a number of reasons, one of them being its star, Kevin Spacey, uh, which, we, you know, we've had Kevin Spacey films on the podcast before, but that is being kind of, like, exacerbated by the film's director, Brian Singer, who is in the middle of a sort of pedophilia scandal right now. And I said, you know what, Brad? I don't really need to talk about this movie right now. Like, this just does not seem like the appropriate time to talk about the usual suspects. So we have a vacancy, and we would like to get some listener feedback on what that movie should be. We're going to give you four options, and all this week, you can go to our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and cast your vote for what movie you think we should do. And those four options are Babe, Twelve Monkeys, Seven, and Heat. So those are your four options. Please, sometime this week, go to our social media pages and vote for your fan favorite, and that will be the fourth movie in this marathon of 1995 films. Ooh, Bob, I am I allowed to vote on that? Because I have a movie that I want to see. You're probably going to want to watch Babe. No, I actually have for a very long time wanted to watch Seven, and I've just never gotten around to it. Oh, it's a great movie, dude. I don't want to sway so, our listeners, but yeah, great movie. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm going to sway our listeners. Film and Whiskey Nation, <laughs> if you care about me at all, you'll do what I say and vote for Seven. Well, while we have your attention, let me just say here up front that you should know by now that we've switched over to Anchor.fm. There is actually a way on Anchor that you can support Film & Whiskey directly. There is a button on Anchor.fm slash Film Whiskey that just says support. You can actually donate to the show. If you like what we're doing, please give us a shout out. We'd also love for you to go to the reviews section of your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a five-star rating. Leave us a comment and a review. We absolutely love to hear your feedback. So, Bob, this week we are returning to the world of Ron Howard. Uh, we previously watched Cinderella Man, which was another kind of in his wheelhouse of biopics. And we're coming back to what might be one of his best known films. I, I don't know. What, what would you say is like the best known Ron Howard film? That's a good question. I mean, he's made a lot of movies that were huge moneymakers. He's also made some Oscar-y type movies. You know, he won 
best director and, and best picture for A Beautiful Mind. But I would say it's either got to be this movie, Brad, or Cinderella Man that have been kind of his most enduring two films. And I would probably venture to say Apollo 13 is his best known film because you're getting Tom Hanks at the absolute peak of his game. He's coming off back-to-back best actor wins for Philadelphia in 93, for Forrest Gump in 94, and then this is his big year where, you know, he has Apollo 13 and Toy Story. This is a movie that was getting, you know, a huge push for Oscars. It obviously didn't win Best Picture, but I think this is probably Ron Howard having, like, the most sway he's ever had in Hollywood because this movie in 95 was just an absolute juggernaut. Yeah, it's it's interesting. In the years since, I feel like Ron Howard has become kind of like put off to the side, like like a little kid, like, oh, yeah, you do your biopics. Have fun with that. And I think it's easy to forget that this dude is probably one of the most well-known directors of our time. And in a certain sense, he's probably one of the best directors of our time. He's given us so many spectacular movies. Uh, it's just curious to see kind of what has happened to his career you know, in the years following Apollo 13 and really since A Beautiful Mind. Absolutely, Brad. And when I look at this movie especially, I think this and Cinderella Man, again, are the two that really demonstrate how great of a filmmaker Ron Howard can really, really be because this is a nearly perfect movie. When I watch this movie, Brad, it just seems so efficient. It seems like there's really nothing in there that needs to be taken out. It's suspenseful. It's tense. It's emotional and heartfelt. It has great performances. Brad, I don't know why this movie doesn't get more attention. Yeah, I really don't know why either. You know, a a lot of times when we're reviewing movies, I'll I'll talk to my friends and be like, oh, yeah, you know, we're watching this movie that's coming up and just kind of discuss the movies and, and see where people are at. And Apollo 13 is one that people are like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to watch that, but but never got around to it. And I'm like, man, that is so sad to me because this is a great, great movie. Um, you know, we're about to go into the greatest segment in all of podcast history, but I'm going to spoil the start of it by saying I have seen this movie before, um, but it had been so long that I've forgotten certain elements of it. And man, I was just so pleasantly surprised with how well this movie has aged. It's a beautiful film. And I, Bob, I just, I'm excited to get into it with you. Yeah, I am too, Brad. So that means that it is time for us to get into Brad Explains, which is the segment where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just watched, often for the first time. That's not the case today. So Brad, can you very efficiently, like Ron Howard, break down the plot of Apollo 13? So in the 1960s, we were in the middle of a space race with Russia Um, And near the end of the decade, Apollo 11 finally landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong had, you know, taken that great leap for mankind. And a few years later, we see Apollo, the Apollo 13 mission going up to land on the moon again. And this longtime veteran pilot, Jim Lovell, is set to pilot this mission and to be the man who walks on the moon. Obviously, he's very excited about this. At first, his crew was not supposed to fly. They were the backup crew. Um, But the main crew got some sort of illness, couldn't go. So they bump up Tom Hanks's crew and they're ready to roll. Well, at the last minute, there's some little things that are bothering his family, like the fact that it's the 13th flight and they're flying out at 1313 military time on the 13th. And they're, you know, flouting it that we don't care about luck and the number 13 and the danger that that might bring. And 
and all sorts of things go wrong. One of the crew members that is meticulous about the way he does his job is told that he is going to have measles in the middle of the flight. And so they ground him and they call up one of the backup crews to fly for him. Um, So now Tom Hanks is flying with two rookie astronauts. And needless to say, they get underway. And on the first or second day in space, um, they go to cycle the power on some of their oxygen tanks. And a defect in the oxygen tanks causes an explosion. And literally everything goes wrong. And the the what was supposed to be a moon landing mission turns into a rescue mission in which Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton have to fight their way um, back to Earth. They have to use every tool at their disposal to make it back to Earth safely. And on Earth, you have all of the people in Houston, all the engineers, all the young, bright minds trying to find a way to get them back safely. And over and over throughout the movie, you see problem after problem arise, and they have to deal with each problem. By the end of the film, uh, they make it back to Earth safely, and you just have a beautiful, amazing, thrilling biopic of what is mostly an unbelievable story that, Bob, I can't even believe that this really happened in real life. Yeah, Brad, the more I watched it, the more I was like, I think sometimes we take for granted you know, just as human beings, that these these kind of things really happen, that there were three men in space that had all of these obstacles stacked against them, that the odds were insurmountable and we managed to get them back to Earth. And like the fact that we don't talk about this every single day kind of blows my mind because it is such an unbelievable story of determination, of, uh, you know, workmanship. This is really a movie about guys doing their job. And this is something we got into uh, when we talked about Cinderella Man, Ron Howard really likes to champion the everyman. He likes telling stories about people who do the work that they need to do. He tells his stories in a very efficient way. It's like it, it almost seems like Ron Howard likes telling stories that reflect who he believes himself to be in a way. Yeah, there's a beautiful style that Howard engages with where you always feel like you are on level with the main characters in his movies. Mm -hmm. You never feel like you're judging them or above them, but you always have opportunities to glimpse into their psyche. You have opportunities to understand their motivations, why they're doing what they're doing, and you get to see them act heroically. You know, in the middle of the final few days of the flight, you get to see Tom Hanks kind of get angry with Kevin Bacon and just say, you know what? We're not fighting about this right now. We are getting ourselves home like this is going to work. And you get to see these men, you know, in in Houston at the at Mission Control, frantically searching through the parts that are available to them to make a carbon dioxide filter. And you see Gary Sinise meticulously going through the landing sequence to make sure that they don't go over 20 amps because that's all the power they have to boot the system back up and fly back into the Earth's atmosphere. So not just with Tom Hanks, your main actor, but literally with almost every character in this movie, you see them at a certain moment fighting through an obstacle and coming out victorious. And not just that, Brad, but you know, a lot of the people in this movie are experts in their field. I mean, they work for NASA, for crying out loud. You're talking about real astronauts. You're talking about the scientists who are working to get them home, who are brilliant mathematical minds. And yet they choose to portray everyone, 
not as like some crazy scientific expert, but as a guy doing his job. You know, everybody at NASA that gets an idea that says, oh, you know, um, we actually miscalculated this and they're going to come in shallow because we were planning on hauling some moon rocks or things like that. They're not portrayed as, you know, high and mighty. They're not speaking in a language, a vernacular that's beyond the everyday person. Let's hold it down. Let's hold it down, people. The only engine we've got with enough power for a direct abort is the SPS on the service module. What Lovell has told us, it could have been damaged in an explosion. So let's consider that engine dead. We light that thing up, could blow the whole works. It's just too risky. We're not going to take that chance. In fact, the only thing the command module is good for is re-entry, so that leaves us with the LEM, which means free return trajectory. Once we get the guys around the moon, we'll fire up the LEM engine, make a long burn, pick up some speed, Get them home as quick as we can. Gene, I'm wondering what the what the Grumman guys think about this. We can't make any guarantees. We designed the limb to land on the moon. Not fire the engine out there for course correction. Well, unfortunately, we're not landing on the moon, are we? I don't care what anything was designed to do. I care about what it can do. So let's get to work. Let's lay it out. Okay. They're all just kind of portrayed as normal people doing the job that's set before them in order to get these guys home. And I think it's really beautiful. And I think one of my favorite moments that displays that is when in the middle of a crisis, Tom Hanks is doing some math on gimmels. I will say, Bob, they talk about gimmels a lot in this movie, and I have no clue what a gimmel is. <laughs> but but Tom Hanks is doing some gimmel math. And like you said, he's brilliant. He is a veteran, experienced fighter pilot, astronaut. He's doing the math. And he takes the time to say, you know what, guys, I I'm not sure if I'm getting this math right. Can you check it for me? And like in that moment, Tom Hanks is so relatable because how many times have you tried to do math by hand and been like, man, I don't even know if this is right. I need to get a calculator out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brad. And when it comes to Ron Howard himself, I kind of feel the same way about this movie. You know, I I've been saying that he makes his movies like an ordinary person would make a movie. And what I mean by that is this. I don't think that there is a ton of like super artsy cinematography or, or dazzling displays of, you know, cinematic language on display here. I think Ron Howard really is interested in how do I capture this story truthfully? And he puts the camera where it needs to be placed. Are there some really cool shots? Yeah, there's some cool shots, but it's not it's not the same kind of vibe you get with like when we watched uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban a few weeks ago. And we talked about Alfonso Cuaron and, and the way that he had these super long takes with the camera and he would weave and move. It's not like that with Apollo 13. It's very expertly cut together. Um, but the camera setups are very, very simple. And I like that he doesn't draw attention to the movie making. He's not doing anything to take you out of the reality that he's trying to build with the story they're crafting. And I, I think one of my favorite parts of that is that even with all of that being true, Bob, you still get a few shots that are a homage to what other movie than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like you, you still get a few just gorgeous shots of, you know, the Apollo 13 mission flying through space with the moon in the background or, you know, the stars or with the earth in the background. And so even with this workman like normal shots, nothing too fancy with the camera work, you still get some spectacular views of space that almost every single space movie since 2001 has had to include. You know, Brad, it's really funny that you bring up 2001 because you're right. There are some very clear nods to that 
uh, in this film. But one other thing that I noticed, especially as the movie got closer to the end, is the parallels between this and a movie like The African Queen. We reviewed The African Queen just a few weeks ago, and Brad, you and I were not super high on that movie because we said that the plot in some ways seemed very this and then this and then this and then this. And you could have interchanged any of the problems they encountered on that boat. And then I started watching this movie and I was like, you know, in a lot of ways, this is very similar to the African Queen. They're basically on a lifeboat in space and they're encountering all the obstacles on their way back to Earth. And in some sense, yeah, I think that you probably could have interchanged all the different things they ran into. But with this movie, I think the first of all, the fact they're working off a true story really helps everything. But the fact that the obstacles they encounter really do seem to line up with whatever leg of the journey they're on. So like, especially at the end of the movie, when they finally see where the explosion was and Tom Hanks is like, wow, look at this. It looks like it cracked all the way up to the heat shield. And they cut back to Houston and they you just see two of the guys looking at each other and they say the heat shield. And then you come to understand if the heat shields cracked, they're going to incinerate on reentry. And I think. The fact that each of the issues that they encounter comes up at the exact time that they need to be shared really, really helps. It's it's almost like clues getting revealed as the movie goes along. And I think that's what really separated for me this movie from The African Queen is that, yeah, they're facing a series of obstacles, but they felt a lot more natural and it felt like the plot was introducing them in a way that made a lot more sense. Oh, I totally agree, Bob. I I think that not only did they make more sense, but I'm going to go back to your first point and just say the fact that you go into this movie knowing that it is a true story, to me, that makes all of the problems they face so much more real, so much more life-threatening. It gives a gravity to the movie that you don't have in something like The African Queen because we know going into The African Queen that that is a written story that is made up for us to watch. Right. And, and there's something about it being real that makes you go, holy cow, they had to deal with that and they made it through. Oh my gosh, they had this happen and they still made it through. Oh my gosh. They... And it just builds and builds and builds. And and all in the end, what Howard is building is this honest picture of human ingenuity, of human striving, and of human triumph over chance and bad luck and bad fortune. Brad, I think that's a really natural segue into talking about two things before we get to the break. The first is, let's wrap up this conversation about Ron Howard as a director, and then I also want to talk about the script a little bit. Because like you said, knowing that this is a true story, I think it has a lot of pros, but there's also a lot of things in the cons column. This is something that the entire world was watching happen in 1970. And so the people going to see this movie, a lot of them had this burned into their memory. They knew every beat of what these guys had experienced. And Ron Howard somehow still manages to make such a suspenseful and tense movie. And I think that really is one of the biggest triumphs of this movie is that it manages to be so compelling, so suspenseful, even though you know exactly what's coming at every turn. Well, and we've talked about that with movies like The Sixth Sense before, right? Like there's certain movies that like once you know the twist, the movie's a little less thrilling. The movie's a little less enrapturing. And Apollo 13, like The Sixth Sense, avoids that problem that even regardless of the fact that you know that they're going to get rescued, you know that everything's going to turn out all right. I still found myself like hyperventilating a little bit and nervous and 
and scared for the members of the crew. I, it's it's just truly amazing what Howard's able to do. Well, and then I think we also have to couple that with the script that was written for this movie. There are four credited screenwriters. Two of them are Jim Lovell and Jeffrey Kluger, who wrote the book that this movie is based on. But what I really love about this movie is that even in some of the more like obvious connections they're trying to make, everything really works. Like it just it there are moments where it seems like it shouldn't work and it still does because they're so economical and everything is so pared down to the bare essentials that it's like, OK, yeah, I understand that we need that story beat brought in. I'm thinking, for example, of like there's this one moment where they're basically going to have to manually pilot the lem for a period of like, I don't know what it is, 15 seconds or something. And they have to maintain a course. They can't go like more than two degrees off course. And all of the newscasters are saying like, this is statistically impossible. It's not going to work. And then they show a clip of Tom Hanks's character, Jim Lovell, talking about what it was like flying and being a pilot and how he saw the, you know, transluminescent or whatever things in the yeah. water that were guiding him home. And it's like, OK, I know what you're doing here. Like this, this is a very obvious story beat because it's meant to comfort his wife and it's meant to foreshadow to us that he's a good pilot and it's going to, you know, it's all going to work out. It shouldn't work. It should be like a very cliched, eye rollingly bad type thing. And yet for some reason, Brad, I think that they do those in such a, a kind of like sparse way that it really, really works even when they're leaning into some of that territory. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it totally does. And, and do you want to know what else makes that work, Bob? <laughs> What's that? It's Tom freaking Hanks. Tom man. Hanks, man. Like, he's so, so good at drawing in the audience and just moving them emotionally wherever the heck he wants them to go. Absolutely. This really <laughs> like is Hanks the, at the top of his game. Oh, it it truly is. And so, I, Bob, I totally agree. Like with maybe a lesser director, you would have more of those sappy moments and it wouldn't go well. And with a bit of a lesser actor, you know, you wouldn't be able to pull off even the one or two that Howard puts in here. But when you have, you know, an actor at the top of his game and you have a director at the top of his game, you can get away with stuff like that. And, and you see that here in Apollo 13. Well, Brad, I think this is a really good place for us to hit pause. We have a lot of whiskey to drink today and a lot to talk about. But when we get back from our break, we're going to talk about the actors in this film and break down our favorite performances. So for now, let's get to this Seagram's Seven Crown. What do you say? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Seagram's Seven Crown, also known as Seagram's Seven. Brad, we actually have a really special treat today. This is something we've never, ever done before on this podcast. A family friend of mine was actually cleaning out the attic in her mom's house last year and found these old kind of airplane bottles of Seagram's Seven. They are still sealed um, and they looked pretty old. And she said, hey, would you guys want to try these for your podcast? And I said, absolutely. 
So I looked at the bottles, and on the very bottom of the sample bottle that we have, you can see that it is imprinted with the year 1969. So we have Seagram's 7 from 50 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that what's inside of this bottle is 50 years old, but it means that it this particular bottle was on the shelf 50 years ago, and it has been sitting unopened for that long. And I thought, what a really cool thing to do, because we're talking about an event today with Apollo 13 that happened 50 years ago. How cool would it be to get a bottle of Seagram 7 off the shelf from today and compare it to what they could have had 50 years ago as they were watching the Apollo 13 mission happening? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to open up these little bottles of 1969 Seagram 7, and we're going to pair them with a bottle that I got at the end of 2019 and try to pick apart some of the differences and give our review of the 2019 version. Yeah, Bob, I, I don't know if you've ever watched the TV show Mad Men, but Seagram 7 seemed to be a staple of the 1960s, and I am excited to get my hands on what they were actually drinking. I'm, I'm pretty much Don Draper. Yeah, basically. Seagram 7 was pretty much the most popular whiskey in America for a long time, Brad. It is the very first uh, whiskey brand to ever reach a million cases sold. It was the first one to ever hit 100 million cases sold. By the early 80s, they had sold 300 million cases of Seagram's 7. It's still one of the 30-ish biggest brands in the spirits industry. I will say this up front about Seagram 7, Brad. It is a blended whiskey. And what that means is it still qualifies as whiskey because it's made out of grain and it is put in oak for a while. But it's not a bourbon. It's not a rye. It's not anything like that. What this is basically made out of, Brad, is about 75% grain neutral spirits, which is like what comes off the, the still. They just keep distilling it and keep distilling it to get all the impurities out. And it basically becomes vodka. And so what they do is they use 75% vodka and add 25% whiskey to it. So this is a blend of things that are all technically called whiskeys, but, eh, I mean, it is kind of a bastardized, you know, adulterated version of what you and I would normally be drinking on this podcast. Language, Bob. I know, right? <laughs> no, Bob, that's interesting. I honestly did not know a single lick of information about Seagram 7 other than that it was a popular whiskey. So now, man, I know more now because of you. That's right. That's what I'm here for, Brad. I mean, <laughs> most people know Seagram 7 from drinking it in the classic drink, the 7 and 7, which is just this and 7-Up. And one of the reasons that it seems to hold up so well in a 7 and 7 is because so much of it is made out of neutral spirits. So what my worry here, Brad, is that this may not taste super great, or it may just taste kind of like a watered-down whiskey. Um, I think what we should do, Brad, let's go to the 2019 version of this first and see what the average consumer can get when they try this. And then we'll compare it with what they had 50 years ago. So let's pick up our 2019 glass. Brad, what are you getting on the nose of the Seagram 7 Crown? Honestly, Bob, it kind of smells like vodka to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does just smell like a whiskey. Like if you if you had whiskey on the rocks, let it sit and all the ice melted. It smells like watered down whiskey. It's not offensive. Um, I mean, it, you smell the alcohol a little bit, but it really just smells like a standard bottom shelf whiskey that's also been, you know, diluted on the rocks for a while. Yeah, it's it's not a potent nose. Um, I would guess that it's pretty low proof, if not 80 proof, but it's not it's not bad in any way. It's just kind of there. Um, there's a little bit of whiskiness on it. I can't really get more specific than that because it just smells a little bit like whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this actually does remind me a little bit of the uh, Canadian mist that I enjoyed and everyone else hated. Uh, 
So, Brad, I'm actually only going to give this a four on the nose. There's just not much there. It's not unpleasant, but it's just, it's so mild that I just don't think there's really going to be anything on this. You're right, it is 80 proof. Um, so, yeah, I, what would you give it on the nose, Brad? I, Bob, I literally wrote down right before you said it that I, it's a four. Yeah. It's, it's right there. It's below average, but it's not terrible. Well, let's give it a sip and see what we're in for. Huh. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's watery. It's watered down whiskey. Yeah, I mean, that's I remember watching a video about the Pacific Rim movies and they decided that the the name of the main character in that was generic action star. <laughs> and I think that this could just be generic whiskey star. Yeah, like, like it's just kind of generic whiskey. There's nothing bad about it. Honestly, I wouldn't be ashamed to pour that to somebody who'd never had whiskey and be like, yeah, here, just. Try this. Yeah. It's, it's it's not everything whiskey has to offer, but, you know. It's a good way to get yourself acclimated, I would think. I yeah. mean, it really just tastes... I struggle to give tasting notes, Brad. It's just very, very bland. It's sweet. It definitely has the alcohol of an 80-proof whiskey, but without all the flavor of an 80-proof whiskey. So I think I'm just going to stick at a four again for taste. Bob, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just gonna give my score. I'm going to give it a 20 out of 50. I'm going to give it a four on every single category. I think it's a fine substandard whiskey. (laughs) Brad, I think that's really helpful. I'll just go ahead and give my scores then, too. I think the finish is where this really suffers because the alcohol comes out pretty harsh and you have no flavor left. So it's a pretty strong burn going down. I'm only going to give it a three on the finish. Uh, On balance, I actually think it's well balanced because there's nothing there. So, like... I guess I'll give it a six on balance. Uh, and then overall value, this costs eleven ninety nine for a fifth. I don't really know what I think of that because you can get actual bourbon for the same price that we kind of liked. I mean, Benchmark is about that price. So I'm going to, uh, I'll give it a four. Like you said, Brad, that takes me to a 21 out of 50. So we're, we're pretty much in the same spot. Brad, we're coming out to an average of a 20.5 out of 50. Would you recommend Seagram 7? Why not? Yeah, sure. It, it's fine. <laughs> I like I I hope that Film and Whiskey Nation understands I'm not trying to be facetious or just joke about this, but like it's a solid fine whiskey for $12. Like if this was priced 15 or up, I'd say, yeah, you know, spend your money elsewhere, but it's 12 bucks. Like if you want a decent whiskey just to sip on or to mix, go ahead and buy yourself some Seagram 7. Well, that means it's time for us to get into this 1969 edition. Brad, what are you immediately noticing in terms of differences? Is there anything that's standing out to you here? Well, honestly, Bob, I I think at one point in the past two years or year and a half of doing the podcast, we actually did drink a whiskey that was like 30, 40, 50 years old. It was an old old charter. I think it came with a blind tasting we did from uh, Big Escambia. That's yes, that's you're you're jogging my memory. And honestly, some of the things I picked up on that whiskey, I'm picking up here. Like, it it kind of smells a little bit like a musty library book. Not not like in a bad way. It's just, it smells old. Yeah, that's actually a really good uh, note, Brad. It, it smells like the pages of an old library book that you just spilled rubbing alcohol on top of. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not unpleasant, but it's a it's a nose I've never encountered on a whiskey. And I will say, when we cracked these open, there was a bit of sediment in these bottles, and we we filtered it all out. We you know we checked with some of our bourbon drinking friends about drinking you know they call them dusties, 
Uh, they said we'd be good to go. If Brad and I happen to not make it through this, you know what caused our death. That's just that's all I want to <laughs> say about this. So, Brad, yeah. let's give it a sip and see if it tastes any different. Wow, Bob, I uh, I don't know if you got this, but I got the notes of a dusty old library book. I did too. Although I will say this is a significantly better whiskey than the 2019 one. Like I'd rather taste old library book than taste nothing. Yeah, and I remember with the biggest Scambia line, I remember being like really thrown off by how it tasted. And I think it might have been because we did it as a blind flight. I didn't know to kind of expect that older flavor. Whereas now, like, I know where this came from. I know that it was on the shelf in 1969. And I actually find that that old musty flavor kind of makes it a little bit unique and yeah. interesting. Well, I will say that this is actually an 86 proof version of Seagram 7. So at some point they've watered it down even more. I don't know what the mash bill is. It was blended even back then. So I don't know if they were using more whiskey and less neutral grain spirits back then. This is significantly better than the 2019 version. I would probably give this like at least a, I'd say like a 35 out of 50, Brad. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I would be in the 30 range, 30 to 32 maybe. Yeah. This is really interesting. I've I you know, we've only drank something this old one other time. I assume that, you know, if you got really high-end whiskey from the 60s, it would have some of these notes and you would also probably have a more enjoyable whiskey drinking experience just because it's a higher quality. But this has been really fascinating, Brad. I mean, to see how 50 years of age has changed the flavor, the aroma, uh, of this whiskey, something that I've never really gotten to do before. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, Bob, honestly, what we need to do is buy a bottle of Seagram 7 now, one of these airplane bottles, wait until the 50th year of the podcast, and then sample all three against each other. Absolutely. It's going to it's gonna be crazy. Yeah, it'll be great. We'll, we'll check in on that in 50 years. But for now, Brad, let's get back to talking about Apollo 13. Let's get to it. So that was Seagram 7 Crown. We are getting back into talking about Apollo 13. And Brad, we really haven't had a chance to talk about any of the performances in this movie. And I think for, for being a movie that feels like such a huge ensemble movie, when I really think about it, there's only like six people that I think are kind of worth talking about on the podcast. You've got the three guys in the spaceship, right? Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, and Bill Paxton. You've got Ed Harris back on Earth. You've got Gary Sinise, who is the guy that got replaced back on Earth working to bring them home. And then you've got uh, Kathleen Quinlan playing Tom Hanks's wife. And that's pretty much it. So I think we can probably hit all of them. Brad, let's start with the guys who are in the ship together, the, you know, our three fearless leaders. Who do you want to start with on the ship? Let's talk about Bill Paxton a little bit. Let's do it, because I actually think Bill Paxton is the most underrated person in this whole movie. Like. 
he doesn't have a lot to work with. I don't think either of the two astronauts who aren't named Tom Hanks have a lot to work with here. And I think Bill Paxton really does a good job of showing us that his character, uh, Fred, is, you know, a, a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. He likes to goof off. But then when he takes a turn for the worse, he starts to get sick. I think he really conveys that very, very well. I was impressed with Bill Paxton in this movie. Yeah, like really, if you break the movie down, half of the movie's in space, half of the movie's on Earth, and Tom Hanks is the star in space, and Ed Harris is the star on Earth, right? Yeah, I would say that's fair. And so with that in mind, I think when you look at A, Bill Paxton, and B, Kathleen Quinlan, you have two of, I would say, the best supporting performances that I've seen. Um, I really think that Bill Paxton... Like you said, Bob, at the start, he's kind of shallow as a character. But by the end of the movie, you see a depth of character and grit and tenacity and determination come out of his soul and leech into every bit of his actions that you're just blown away with his performance. And you're really rooting for him by the end of the film. He, You know, he's sick. He's running a fever. I think they say of like 104, 105. Um, and he just... He he just kind of grin and bears through all of it to fight for his crew to make it back safely to Earth. I, I loved Bill Paxton in this movie. Well, and then on the other side of Tom Hanks, you have Kevin Bacon, who is is an actor that is capable of carrying movies like he's a legitimate movie star. And to take a role this small, I think, is is no small thing in itself. But the problem is that I think he's probably the most underdeveloped character of these six characters. He comes in fairly late into the movie in terms of what you find out about him. You know, he's the replacement and he's the guy that everybody else keeps at arm's length. When things start to go wrong on the ship, both Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton suspect him of doing something wrong. And it's not really Kevin Bacon's fault, but because he's kept at arm's length for such a long period of the film, I just really felt like I never got to know Jack Swigert as a character that much. They tried to kind of shoehorn in some stuff at the beginning where he's making like sex jokes at Jim Lovell's party. But other than that, I don't feel like there was a lot there. And so Kevin Bacon was kind of just fine in this movie. You know, he was fine. Yeah, I, I think he does a lot with what he's given. But since he wasn't given very much, you know, he's just he's portrayed as the playboy bachelor astronaut. And they even say that, that this is the first single person ever to go to space and, you know, all this stuff that. They just kind of portray him as a shallow playboy. And by the end of the movie, you recognize that he has the same grit and determination that Bill Paxton shows. But like you said, Bob, he's he's fine. He's good in the movie. Well, and I think he really is upstaged by Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise is also coming off an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for Forrest Gump. I think he has a lot of momentum coming into this film. And aside from Tom Hanks's character, Gary Sinise's character really has the most emotional weight behind it. He's a guy who desperately wants to go to space, who gets told he can't because he has the measles, who you find out really got screwed over because they were wrong and he never had the measles. And he has to set aside all of that to work to get his friends back home. Gary Sinise is one of those actors that is kind of always the unspoken hero of the cast. He never really became like the biggest A-list guy. But when he has a part this meaty, I feel like he just he does the work that needs to be done and it completely helps anchor the movie. I don't think that that Ed Harris's performance would work as well as it does without Gary Sinise, because Ed Harris is like the guy that is very stoic and 
optimistic, but but kind of a general about it. You know, he's directing people around. Gary Sinise is more of like, I am the friend of these people in space. And I think having him hold that role down so well really helps the movie overall. Oh, it it totally does. Sinise in this movie just gives a beautiful performance. He is, you're sympathetic towards him. You feel for him when he gets grounded and is unable to fly. And then when he's called up in the middle of the night, he is a he has that workmanlike attitude of I'm going to get it done. Even though I got screwed over, I'm going to get the job done. I'm going to make sure that I get my boys home safely. And I, I just I love Gary Sinise in this movie. And then, you know, next to Gary Sinise, you do have Ed Harris. And I I personally thought that Ed Harris was just great in this movie. But at the same time, it's just Ed Harris being Ed Harris. Yeah, yeah. Y- you know what I mean? Like he, he is really good at playing a type, and yet, yeah. like, and yet, you know, if you watch his movies, you do see subtle differences. I, I agree, Brad. I think he's fantastic in this movie. Honestly, like the moment that really gets me at the end of the movie is when you finally see him like sit down because you really don't see him sit for much of the movie. When he sits down at the end and finally comes to tears over the realization of what they've just done to bring these guys back home, that really has the emotional kind of sucker punch that you need at the end of the film. And he just absolutely nails it. He was nominated for an Oscar for this film for Best Supporting Actor, and I think he deserved every bit of that nomination. Well, it's kind of like in your life when you have like a pulled muscle or your back goes out or, you know, you have some sort of lingering injury. And you you continue to hold on and and you continue to try to work through it, but it's a pain that doesn't go away. When you finally get rid of that pain and you feel that relief, that's what you have when Ed Harris finally sits down. Like you don't realize it, but the way he stands, the way he carries himself, the tone of his voice, you know, the way he gives orders to people, all of it carries a healthy sense of tension and a healthy sense of fear of like, we need to get this job done or something terrible is going to happen. And so when he finally sits down, it's the release of that tension. It's the release of those emotions of like, oh, I don't have to work anymore. I Like we got the job done. And it, it's just, it's a spectacular moment in the film. And then that basically just leaves us with Tom Hanks. And we, we talked about him a little bit at the beginning of the episode, but he's just brilliant. I mean, there's really not much to say here. Like, he is at the peak of his powers. He's coming off those two Oscar wins. And at first, I'm like, okay, this is Tom Hanks kind of doing the more serviceable role. Like, you know, for a while, it just kind of seems like Lovell is the good guy, the devoted husband and father. And they're really trying to milk at the beginning of the film that he's such a good husband and such a good father. And I'm like, okay, like, we understand. But as the movie goes on, I think Hanks really finds places where he can add layers of nuance to the character so that by the time they get to that, you know, when they're about to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and he says to the guys around him, you know, gentlemen, it's been a privilege flying with you. And they put it on Tom Hanks's face and you can tell he's like, yeah, I'm probably going to die right now. And, and he starts tearing up, essentially. It's, a, it's an incredibly emotional moment. And it only works because, not because of what's on the page. But because of what Tom Hanks is able to bring to that character, I am I'm kind of angry, Brad, looking at the list of nominations this movie got to find out Tom Hanks was not even nominated for this movie. And I think part of that is because they probably had a little bit of Oscars fatigue with him for winning two years in a row that they were trying to just give it to somebody else. But I honestly believe he should have been nominated for this movie, too. He's that good. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the number of uh, of MVPs that LeBron has got. You're just kind of like, really? That that's it, right? <laughs> but no, Bob, I'm I'm right there with you. This is an Oscar worthy performance. That because it was his third Oscar worthy performance in a row, he didn't even get nominated for it, which is just that's just bonkers to me. I like, how do you do that to Tom? Like you said, at the height of his powers, I it doesn't make any sense to me. But regardless, we here at Film and Whiskey Nation would like you to know, Tom Hanks, that we are thankful for this performance and we would have given you an Oscar. Absolutely. And Brad, I think that that is a great place to transition into our final scores, because I feel like this movie is underappreciated just as its star Tom Hanks is. I'm looking at the IMDb page right now. This movie only has a 7.6 out of 10. And I just kind of wonder, what is it that is keeping people from understanding that this is a nearly perfect movie? I mean, is it is it going to knock you out with its filmmaking technology? No, not really. It's just a well-made, efficient movie, and I think that there's something to be said about that. And too often, we neglect movies like this, or we neglect to give credit to movies like this. And Brad, I honestly don't know anything about this movie that I, that I would take out or change that wouldn't be just the most minute, nitpicky thing imaginable. So I want to hear your final score, Brad, but I think you can kind of tell where I'm going with mine. Yeah, Bob, th- this movie is so much fun. It's so suspenseful. There's so many great acting performances. And yet, I will say, there's something about it that keeps me from giving it a 10. It's not, it just doesn't quite have that it factor that makes me go, yes, this is a perfect movie, 10 out of 10. I am going to give it a 9.5 out of 10, I, which is you know the second highest score we, we can give it with our film and whiskey scale. I think it's a spectacular movie. I think it's deserving probably of the title of one of the top 100 movies of all time. It, it, there's something that it's not perfect for me, but but man, oh man, it's a great, great, great film. Brad, I completely agree with you. There's just something about it that doesn't seem, and I can't think of the word, but I guess I want to say like transcendent. Like it doesn't, you know when you watch a movie for the first time and you're like, oh, Okay, like this is this is a game changer kind of movie. This doesn't have that. It's just it's just the most perfectly made genre movie ever. It's just a suspenseful survival movie done to the best possible extent that can be done. And so I have been going back and forth between a nine and a half and a ten. And I really worry about like when we get to the end of our season and we're doing our bracket challenge, are we going to forget how good this movie is? Because it doesn't seem to have that like, quote unquote, transcendent quality to it are we going to lean to like the more artsy movie over this and i hope that we at least consider how perfectly made this is i think i am going to give it a 10 out of 10 brad would i rank it in like my top 25 50 movies of all time no but you're right brad i really do think this deserves consideration for being in the 100 best especially the 100 best american films ever made this is just a a brilliant tribute to movie making to the american spirit And I think Ron Howard directing it perfectly encapsulates everything about that. So for me, I'm going to give it a 10. And that brings our average to a 9.75 out of 10. But we want to know what you think. Please tell us what you think of Apollo 13. You can find us on social media at Film Whiskey on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or you can give us a phone call. 
Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. And if you'd like to call in online, go to our anchor.fm webpage and leave us a voicemail there. Next week, we keep it rolling with the Tom Hanks Marathon. We're going to be checking out uh, the very first collaboration between Pixar and Walt Disney, 1995's Toy Story. For the Film & Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. So I will say this, Brad, I really enjoy drinking this, but I'm hesitant to drink more just in case I die, you know? <laughs> Why like, would... I don't know if I'm going to finish this. Why would you die? Well, who knows? I mean, <laughs> what if there was some sort of chemical reaction going on in here that I was not aware of? <laughs> what What if there's 60s asbestos that they put in for flavor? I mean, would you be surprised? <laughs> there's a little bit of smallpox in there to, to right. just get you going. Right.